with you, I want to invite you to open up to uh, the book of Colossians, the, the letter of Paul to the Colossians, that is. And we're going to be in chapter 3, um, moving right along here. And uh, Paul has gotten through the dense uh, theological stuff of the letter and is now moving on to the, uh, the more practical aspects of the faith. And uh, that is where we meet him today. We're going to be in Colossians 3, looking at uh, verses 1 through 4. And uh, as you are turning to that, that, that uh, passage, I have a very, very important question for you, and I want you to listen carefully, because what I'm going to ask says a lot about you. What is your favorite movie or series of movies? Okay, it wasn't all that serious of a question, but I have your attention, right? Now, if someone were to come to me and ask me that question, uh, that would be a really easy question uh, to, to answer. Uh, I would go so far as to say that if there was only one series of movies that I could have with me for the rest of my life, if I were on a deserted island and I had a DVD player or a streaming service on a deserted island, the... Uh, the one series of movies that I would keep with me, hands down, would be the Back to the Future series. Now, I know it's not as romantic, and I know it's not as thrilling, and I know it's not as adventurous or life-changing or profound as some of the movies that, that, uh, that you may pick, but it's entertaining. I like them. They're great movies. I have since I was a kid. And in case you haven't seen them before, or even if you have, it's a worthy story to rehash. Uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's uh, about a teenager named Marty McFly who has this, this crazy old friend who's a scientist, and his name is Doc Brown, and he's invented a time machine out of a DeLorean, which is this about the weirdest car that you can imagine built uh, back in the early 1980s. There's a picture of it right there. It's completely ridiculous. It's a ridiculous plot line, but it's, it's so much fun. And uh, in, the, in the first movie, Marty accidentally gets stuck back in 1955. And he ends up meeting his parents. And through all these interactions, he, he sort of screws up the beginning of their relationship. And because he did that, he is threatening his very existence. It, it's very existential. It, it's just great. So in the first movie, Marty is concerned with getting his parents together so that he can actually exist. Boy, that's a weird plot line, isn't it? In the second movie now, Doc brings him to, to the year 2015 because Doc has found out that Marty's future son has made some pretty poor decisions in who he's hanging out with, and he ends up going to jail. So he wants to bring Marty to the future in order to stop uh, his son from making this reckless decision. In the, in the process of, of helping his son... Well, Marty ends up making some pretty poor decisions, too, and ends up radically altering his life in 1985 and, uh, and not for the good. So in order to fix his present, he has to go back to the future and fix all these things. He has to manipulate the future in order to make his present the way that it's supposed to be. Well, in the third movie, well, I mean, let's be honest, the third movie wasn't all that good. But... <laughs> It was entertaining, at least. Um, it, it, it continues this theme of Marty's past and his present and his future. They're all bound up in this quantum mechanics of time travel 
theory and drives home the point that what happened in the past, even generations before you existed, affects who you are and what you are today. Now, I happen to come from a worldview that I believe is a biblical worldview that believes that the future is actually fixed. God knows what's going to happen. It can't change. And so because of that, we also see, however, in Scripture that our real decisions and our real situations shape what is going to come in the future later. And in our text this morning now, Paul is going to bring us back to the future. He takes us back not to 1955, but rather all the way back to the year A.D. 33. He takes us back to a bloody cross, and he takes us back to an empty tomb. And just like Marty McFly, though we live here now in the year 2020, if we are in Christ... If we have received him as our Lord and Savior, then in a very real way, you and I have died with Jesus when he was on that cross. In a very real way that when he came out of that that tomb and left it empty, we walked out with him. And these things radically alter how we live today. And it not only affects how we live today, but it also helps us and propels us into the future, one that we cannot yet see, but one that is sure and one that we ought to look forward to. So I want to invite you to open up to the letter of Paul to the Colossians in chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 1, only four short verses packed with so much good stuff in it. This is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, how we long for that day when Christ will return. Father, I ask in just these few minutes that we have together, Lord, that we would seek the things that are above where you are. Father, I pray that you would help our minds to be fixated on eternity. Lord, and that it would shape how we live today. Father, help us to remember our previous state of sin, the state that we have died to and have been risen out of. God, help us to rejoice that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And Father, help our spirits to look forward to that great day when Christ appears in all of his glory. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, if we have received the Lord Jesus Christ, 
if we've tasted and seen that indeed the Lord is good, if we have had our sins forgiven, if we have peace with God through Jesus, then we need to go back to the future this morning. And the first way to do that is to see, having first been raised with Christ, we need to seek him wholeheartedly. Having been raised with Christ, seek him wholeheartedly. Verse 1 actually is, is, is sort of a, a, a shout-out to chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, that Paul had just closed out that argument. Look what he wrote in, in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Uh, he writes this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you have been raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God is made alive together with him, having forgiven us all. Again, underline that word, all our trespasses. It's very theological, uh, very clinical um, way of putting it. It's very technical, right? Paul is making a theological statement about what happened to you and what happened to me when we came to Christ. That when Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago through faith, you and I were raised with him spiritually. Now that's neat. And that's reassuring. But unless it is practical and unless it has teeth, well, it's just a nice thought. And so now in, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul revisits this idea and now tells us what we are to do with that. And he says that what we are actually to do with it is to radically reorient all of our desires, all of our longings, all of our strivings to match up with Christ's goal for you in your life. Look with me in verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ, you can insert the word then after that. If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, it's interesting here, what Paul is doing is he is not necessarily speaking to our minds, although that's part of it. He is speaking, rather, to our hearts. Again, the heart is biblically what we consider the epicenter of our being. It is where uh, all of our uh, motives come from. It's what all of our, our behaviors are rooted in. Every word we say, every action that we do is, is from the overflow of our hearts. Our hearts show us who we truly are. And Paul now is saying that if we are in Christ, if we have joined him in, uh, in his resurrection, then our hearts uh, affections and desires and inclinations ought not to be 
part of this world. They shouldn't be set on the things of this world. Well, what does that mean? Well, we see it in the choices we make for entertainment. We see it in the choices uh, that we make and how we spend our money. We see it in our dreams for the future and for our children's future and for our grandchildren's future. We see it in the way that we conduct our relationships. We can see it in what triggers us into jealousy or anger. We can see it all around us. Rather, Paul says that our heart's inclination ought to be what it says in verse 1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, I fully realize that many of you are going to look differently on me for what I'm about to say, but I'm not ashamed to admit it. There have been times in my life that I have gone to a meeting because they offer free food. (laughs) There have been times when I don't really care about what the meeting is about. I just want the free food. And I think you're laughing because you've maybe done it a time or two as, as well. I realize it's a bad motivation, but honestly, do these companies expect that anyone would show up to their meetings if they didn't have free donuts or free breakfast or, or something available for people to entertain them while they wait for this presentation? They realize that people wouldn't listen to their pitch. They, they wouldn't take time out of their day unless something is beneficial for them. But in sort of a sick and twisted way, I think this is how a lot of us look at heaven. We're invited by this Jesus to come and be with him. But instead of being motivated by the host and what he would offer us for eternity, we are motivated rather by the things that will be there. The things that we love doing on this earth. The people that we love spending. Not that those things are bad. But a lot of us, when we think about heaven, we think less about Christ and more about what it's going to be like when we're unencumbered by sin and we get to do those things that we enjoyed, even if we're able to. I I don't know what it's going to be like. And we use Jesus simply as the means in order to get there. But notice how Paul then, he takes that idea and he redirects our hearts when he says that we are to seek the things that are above, he doesn't mean that we're to have our our hearts just be willy-nilly in the clouds, completely disregarding the things that happen in this world. But we are to seek the things that are above because that is where Christ is. That is our motivation. So essentially what Paul is telling us here is that because our hearts have been resurrected, given new life with Christ, then our hearts ought to be inclined to pursue eternity in light of all of this. Everything that we do, everything that we work toward, 
Every interaction that we have in relationships ought to have that end goal in mind. One day, we are going to be with him. We're going to see him as he really is. And so, today, we must set our hearts on that goal so that we can achieve it. I think of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, they'll be added to you. What is Jesus saying? Paul is basically just paraphrasing what Jesus had said here. Seek the kingdom of God. Our hearts are distracted by so much. And Paul essentially tells us to stop chasing after all these things that don't really matter. Stop chasing or setting your hearts on those things that one day will disappear. Stop putting your heart and its, and its affections on those uh, things that can't deliver. Instead, he says, incline your heart to the Lord of heaven and earth who created you, whom you exist for. He is the end of you. He is the goal of our existence. Therefore, we need to be living intentionally for that day. We look back to his resurrection to find our present spiritual resurrection that will one day lead us to our future glory. So that's the first thing this morning is uh, having been raised with Christ that we need to seek him wholeheartedly. But secondly, having died with Christ, we need to set our mind fully on him. Paul moves from the end, uh, he moves from the life of the heart and its inclinations, and now he, he uh, goes now to the life of the mind. And it's interesting that Paul does this because he's really dealing with uh, two opposite extremes that, that you and I can, uh, can both live in. And it sounds backward, but notice on the one hand in verse 1, uh, Paul deals with those who are all head. There are some of us here that have the tendency to make the Christian life all about knowledge. It is all about everything that you know. Everything that you, that you study, the more you know, the more holy that you are. And those of us, and I, and I tend to put myself in this, those of us who lean this way are all head and no heart. I'm not saying I don't have a heart. i got get emotional about things, but I'm more intellectual, and some of us are that way as well. Those people need to know that our heart belongs somewhere, and it needs to be awakened and pointed to something greater. Now, on the other hand, there are, all, there are some of those that are all heart, but absolutely no, uh, no head. There are the people that believe that theology is for the birds, and there's no way that they would think about or study the finer things of God. Because it's those people that are all about the experience. They're all about the emotion. They're all about the heart. 
And to those people, Paul writes in verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. See, the thing is, is that those who are all head and no heart, these kind of fellas might be the most non-charismatic people that you would ever see in a church service, but guaranteed when the Vikings make an incredible touchdown on a Sunday morning, they're going to be jumping and hollering and, and yelling and hooting and hollering, whatever it is. They've got that in their heart. Paul is wanting them to redirect it. And those of us who maybe aren't into deep theology... You can maybe tell us how a lathe can drill out a nice smooth bowl out of a trunk or piece of wood. Or those of us won't, uh, who won't bother to know what the perspicuity of Scripture is, that'll be on the quiz later, by the way, might be able to tell us how it is that alternating currents can make a, a lamp turn on a light bulb. So all of us have hearts and all of us have thoughts. It's just a matter of where they're directed to. And Paul's not saying that we need to have our face in a theology book here, but what he is saying is, is that our thoughts ought to be directed toward the thing of God, the things of God, the things that are greater than us, the deeper things of God. And again, there's this goal ahead. Either Christ is going to come back, which, amen, Lord, haste the day, let it come. Jesus, come soon. Either he's going to come back or we're going to die. That's the reality. We don't like talking about it, but we need to face it. One day, one of those realities is going to happen. We are going to leave this place. For those of us who have received Christ, we long for the day that we see him in glory. But until that day, we don't just sit around on our, on our phones playing Candy Crush or whatever the latest new fun app is. Our hearts and minds were created to have a heavenly focus. They were created to be directed somewhere. And we don't just have our heads in the clouds and ignore the world while it goes to hell, but rather we can live lives that not only look forward ourselves, but point others in that direction as well, making an eternal impact on them. I love what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis is one of the most brilliant speaker, uh, writers, I think, of uh, really in, in, in Christian history. If you have a chance to read Lewis, please do. This is out of Mere Christianity. He writes this, if it, it does not mean that we are to leave this present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set, foot on, uh, on, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. 
it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. It seems a strange rule, but something like it can be seen at work in other matters. That's a profound thought. When you take your eyes off the road, you know, there's all uh, new law enacted this uh, earlier this uh, year, in, uh, last year in August, that doesn't allow for distracted driving. And whether or not you're distracted by a cell phone or you're distracted by something, if you take your eyes off the road, you start to veer. Now, if you take your eyes off for too long or for too far out, it can be absolutely disastrous. Is it possible that you have spiritually taken your eyes off the road to heaven? Is it possible that you've gone down a different path? Is it possible that your heart has somehow began, begun to look for the things of this world to satisfy us? as if those things can bring deliverance? Is it possible that your mind is set on the things of this world? Is it possible that what you delight in and what you take pleasure in is the same thing or are the same things that the world takes pleasure and delight in? Could it be that you don't long for home because you're too comfortable here? Is there a chance that the way that you are living right now is not preparing you for the world to come? Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of, of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. So if we have died with Christ, then we ought to set our minds fully on Him. Third and finally, we need to realize that having been hidden with Christ, look, gaze, Behold, anticipate his coming. So Paul concludes his argument here by anchoring us in the future. Verse 3 is what is known as a ground clause. And if any of you remember way back into your English days and when you're diagramming sentences and all that, a ground clause is a statement that is the reason for what someone or something has just said previous to that. It's most commonly found with the word for. And now in verse 3, Paul anchors verses 1 and 2 by saying, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, why do we seek the things that are above? Why are our hearts supposed to be inclined that way? Why are our minds supposed to be directed that way? 
because we don't belong here. This is not our home. We are temporary aliens living in this particular place at this particular time. We have died to uh, our old lives and our lives are now hidden with Christ. Why do we set our minds on the things that are above? Because we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ. Paul has already provided the theological framework for this death, but it's helpful to look back in order to see where he's, uh, where he's going with this. Before you and I knew Christ, we were in rebellion toward God. We wanted to do our own thing. We wanted to be the masters of our own domain. We disregarded his laws, disregarded his, 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 the way he wants the world to be ordered, and we wanted to be the captain of our ship. But when we saw our state of sinfulness before him, and we saw the goodness of the Lord, in sending Christ Jesus on this earth to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserved, we trusted in him and were made new in him. We died to the old ways of life. That person that if, if you were a Christian and you have trusted in Christ, that person that you were before you trusted in him, that person is dead. That person is gone. Christ has resurrected your heart it is gone. You might have some of the residual uh, issues of sin that might linger. Christ is working those things out. But that old person is dead. We have died to our selfishness. Paul said in Galatians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Is that, is that your feeling too? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We set our minds and hearts on Christ because in him and in his death, we've died to those old ways. But the question remains is, what does Paul mean when he says that our life is hidden with Christ? That doesn't seem to make sense. There's a couple of ways to think about this. First, let's imagine that there's a, a castle in a faraway land, and there is a, a, a good king in this kingdom, and you're a peasant living outside of this castle, trying to eke out a living. One of the king's messengers one day comes to you and says, the king has discovered that there's an imminent attack on our land here. You need to come with me back to the castle in order to seek protection because this uh, country that is coming to attack us is vicious and violent. They will spare no one. Women, children, animals, doesn't matter. They will wipe everything out that they can. You need to come with me. Well, you can either not believe him and say that's foolishness and keep going about your way, but let's say you do believe him and you go into that castle and you seek refuge deep into it and the attack comes. You can hear it. You can hear all the yelling. You can hear all the screaming. You can hear all the weapons going off. But in the end, you were totally safe. 
you and everyone that was with you survived and weren't even touched. Why? Because you were hidden in the refuge of the king's castle. And in the same way, you and I, if we are in Christ, who is the true king of the universe, then you and I are hidden in his protection. Whatever it is in life that comes our way, it might bruise us, it might bang us up, but we have the king of all ages behind us, and there's nothing that this world can do that will ultimately harm us. In another way, imagine that you are a son or a daughter of a rich, good nobleman who has dominion over land and peoples. This nobleman is very good. He delights to bless in the people, uh, bless the people that he is, he is over. But many people are skeptical of him. They don't trust him. And they, they, they can't believe that he, as a nobleman, would actually do anything that is of benefit to them. And so uh, you then, as a son or a daughter, you go into the public square and you begin to talk to the commoners about your father and his goodness and his, and, uh, his, his wonderful plan to bless them and the land. And Well, they don't believe you. They don't believe the message. They may not even believe that you were actually a son or a daughter of this nobleman. And furthermore, they may even mistreat you because of what you're saying. And this goes on and on for some time. And finally, the nobleman loses patience and says, the time is over. The day of blessing is done. I'm going to go out and I'm going to seek justice for these people that never once received the message of my blessing and the way that they treated my sons and daughters has to be taken care of. He goes out into the public square, revealing to everybody his goodness and his glory, and before he does anything, he brings you out beside him, maybe in front of, that, in front of him, and before that reckoning comes, he displays to the world that you belong to him. And that all this time of their rejection, all this time of their mistreatment, they were mistreating the sons and daughters of the one who wanted to bless them, but they rejected him. See, to the world, your identity was hidden. They thought that you were something that you weren't. But now this nobleman has revealed himself in all of his glory, and your identity in him is also now revealed. That is what Paul is getting at here. The world right now may not know that you belong to Christ. The world may hear you say that and they may reject you. They may not listen to you. They may not care. But you have died to this world. And your life is hidden with Christ. And Paul tells us, that there is a day in which the king in all of his beauty and glory is coming back. And, he do and when he does, we will be revealed. 
as his beloved. We need to recapture this idea of Jesus coming back. We all too often forget about it. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life? Remember, your old life, it ain't yours anymore. When he appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So get this. Our future hope, our future joy is not merely just in the coming of the Lord, which is going to be great and glorious in itself, but our hope is also for the full revelation of who or what we already are in Jesus Christ. John writes it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And further, Paul wrote back in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is in you, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. When Christ comes back, we will be fully transformed into his image. That image that was marred in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam, our federal head, took of the fruit, becoming our representative. We were implicit in that sin. But now Christ, the new Adam, is restoring that image. And when he comes back, we'll be fully transformed into that image. We will cease to sin what will that be like? We will cease to have pain. We will cease to have relational conflict. We will cease to have disease. Ryan, you'll be out of a job, but at least disease will be gone. Crime and conflict. The lion will lie with the lamb. And all will be right with the world. One day, Christ, who is our life, will appear. And we will appear with him in glory. What a day of rejoicing that will be. When life gets difficult, when continuing as a Christian seems like a task and you just want to throw in the towel and you want to be done, when the emotional or the physical pain is unbearable, we must go back to the future and see what is on the way. Christ in his beauty and the fullness of his kingdom. Wait for it. Wait for him. Friends, that's going to be so worth it. You know, Marty McFly may have been stuck in, in a time paradox and forced to manipulate the past in order to uh, save his future. But for us, 
God has already fixed our past by taking on flesh, dying, on, dying the death that we deserved, and being raised imperishable to give us a foundation for a future that is sure and indestructible. So let's go. Let's go back to the future. Let's receive Christ. Let's trust in Christ. Let's live for Christ. Set our hearts and our minds on the things that are above and look for Christ. Surely he is coming soon. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we freely admit that we are so short-sighted. Lord, our nearsightedness spiritually, we only look for the here and now. But Lord, there is coming a day when Jesus is coming back and we have to be ready for it. And so, Father, I pray for those whom you have drawn to yourself, Lord, that they would set their hearts toward you, that their minds would be fixated on what is to come. Father, I pray for those who are here that may never have tasted and seen that indeed the Lord is good, that when they look on the fact that one day their lot is to be a body in a box, but there's more coming. I pray that you would set their heart ablaze for Jesus, who is the only hope to escape eternity apart from you. Father, would they cry out to you now, I, I turn from my sin, Lord, and I receive Jesus. And Father, may we all walk from this place, not with our heads and our hearts in the clouds, but fixated on you and looking to make a difference in this world now so that more and more can be glad in the day when Christ Jesus comes in his glory and reveals us in glory as well. And it's in Christ's name that I ask this. Amen. Would you stand with us as the worship?